Well, if you would this evening, turn to 2 Kings. It's been a couple weeks now since we were in this book, but we're picking up at 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 28 through 36. If you were here three weeks ago, you will know that I actually ended the sermon or the text with verse 28, but I thought it was so important that we read it again because we're picking up this series in 2 Kings after this couple-week hiatus to return to an amazing happening in Israel. Baal worship is gone. It's gone. In fact, if you read through the rest of 2 Kings, when it comes to the northern kingdom of Israel, you won't hear about Baal worship again. It's gone. Not only has Israel dabbled in Baal worship for decade upon decade, but now for the last generation, beginning with Ahab and Jezebel, and then through their sons, Baal worship has been the state-sponsored religion. But with Jehu, a new, and yes, bloody, day was dawning. This is the conclusion or the summary statement of Jehu and his reign, according to the narrator here in 2 Kings. Let's read it and see what we can gain from it and what the Holy Spirit has to teach us. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. In those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel, Haziel defeated them throughout the territory of Israel, from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Manassites, from Aror, which is by the valley of the Arnon, that is Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel and Samaria was 28 years. So we consider this portion of God's word. Let's bow briefly in prayer. Lord, by your grace, open our ears and hearts to hear and understand your word. May your spirit apply them to our lives that we might learn from them, grow in them, and that we might respond to them in faith. Father, I pray that whatever is done here, said here, thought here, would be pleasing in your sight, or else never be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When our country has been only a year and a half since the Supreme Court overturned the infamous court case Roe versus Wade, the good is this. Lives have been preserved. Many children have been born in our country that would not have been born before that terrible legislature, that terrible court case had been decided. Even to have legitimate debates in our society seems like a victory to a country that, for the most part, had no problem with seeing babies in the womb 
killed. Now the bad is this. Many states have doubled down on the right to commit child sacrifice. For that is what abortion is, really, is child sacrifice. And the reality is this. Even though one battle has been won, that is, we have removed a terrible court decision, immoral in all of its parts, and certainly unconstitutional according to our Bill of Rights, which gives us the right to life, something that is not given to children in the womb. This one battle is won, but the war worldwide is still being lost. The numbers are out. In the year 2023, there's an estimated people worldwide, 100 million people died last year around the world, 40 million were in the womb. Out of 100 million people, 40% of them were killed before they could take a breath in the world. The question is, what about the church? Can we in the church win battles and yet still lose a war? This is what Jehu did. This is, I think, the title of the sermon, Winning a Battle While Losing the War. Jehu won a great battle. The battle was twofold. First of all, as a reminder, it was a battle against Baal worship. It was also a, ba a battle against the wicked King Ahab and his sons who were now in control. But in fact, we see that he won the battle against paganism. We also see he won the battle against evil King Ahab. We even see that he won the battle so that he could have a peaceful transfer of the kingship, the throne, to his children. But yet he was still losing the war. Look with me at verse 28 again, one of the most significant verses in all this portion of the historical uh, context of Israel and Judah. In fact, we'll see that there's still Baal worship that's going on in the southern kingdom in Judah after this time. But again, from this point forward, Baal worship is exterminated. This word wiped out can also be translated exterminated. In fact, it's completely gone from Israel. Baal is no longer mentioned in association with Israel except for the summary statements of why Israel was destroyed. It's a significant event. It's significant because they had struggled with Baal worship way back in the times of David and before. Even in the time of the judges, they struggled with the Baal worship that the nations around them in Canaan were practicing. And, and those individuals in Israel, because of their unfaithfulness, at times would bring this Baal worship into their homes, would bring them into their communities, and we found that Ahab committed the ultimate sin of placing Baal worship as the central worship of the nation of Israel. And because of this, because of this extermination of Baal from Israel, I was reminded by one of the authors I read. In fact, it was in 19th century authors, the Keel and Delich commentaries, they said that this actually instituted about a hundred years of the last years of grace to the northern kingdom of Israel in the, in the reign of Jehu and his descendants. His line was the last line that you could even consider half faithful to the Lord. 
But the problem is this. Even though this battle was won, verse 28, so succinct, so reminding of the importance of getting rid of this pagan worship, verse 29 begins with this word, but. But this happened. Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. Jehu ceased from true religious reform. Jehu stopped Baal worship. He stopped the worship of that terrible pagan fertility god. He stopped what was going on. In fact, he got rid of, if you know the context here, he had them gather up all the priests, all the prophets, all the worshipers of Baal. They gathered them all and stuffed them inside that temple, and they destroyed it. Baal and his minions was gone. But Jehu was not really committing an act of true religious reform because of this Yahwism, the worship of Yahweh did not really replace the worship of Baal, or known as Baalism. It says here, he did not turn aside from the sons of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. One of the other significant events of this time period in Israel. If you remember who Jeroboam was, he of course was the one who rebelled against Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And Jeroboam was given the opportunity to have the northern kingdom, and if he were to be faithful to God, he too would be one of those kings in history that would go down as a, a man who would please God and a kingdom that would last a long time. And yet Jeroboam did this. He built some golden calves. He placed them in two locations in different uh, parts and extremes of the northern kingdom of Israel, one in Bethel, one up in Dan. And he said, these golden calves, these are the gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And he instituted his own priesthood, celebrated his own holidays in association with this particular man-made religion. And he established this religion, which would be the downfall and seal the destruction of Israel that would take place hundreds of years later. Jehu brought it back. In fact, this failure to commit true religious reforms returned them to state-sponsored idolatry. And it continued. Jeroboam, after all, was afraid that if the people went down to Jerusalem where God was to be worshipped, that they would stop following Jeroboam. It was a political reason by which he instituted these gods and the kings that followed him, evidently from this time forth, Jehu will reinstitute that state-sponsored religion of the golden calves of Dan and Bethel, and every single king of Israel will continue that practice until the last king, Hosea, and that king and Israel will be destroyed by Assyria. He won the battle against paganism. It was a bloody battle. Lots of people were killed. The whole family of Ahab, the whole followers, all of them, of Baal, destroyed. And yet, he had not won the war. Sometimes I hear all the time about our country from the perspective of church folks, and some folks will talk about whether or not our country can ever truly be a Christian country. 
I have to say there's been no time in the last century, at least not in the half century that I've been alive, in which I could describe our country as truly Christian. Now, there have been times of reforms, yes. There have been times of legislation promoting re uh, morality. Yes, there have even been uh, occasions where the freedom to practice religion has been central to the laws that have been passed or politicians that have gained office. But let's not fool ourselves. To be Christian is to follow Jesus. Does our country follow Jesus? But what about the church? This is the question, isn't it? We have the war in our church to compromise with culture. There is a great battle to bring in all kinds of other ideas and other ways and other gods. In fact, some churches will even proclaim there's more than one way to heaven. Do we follow the latest fads of theology? Do we follow the, 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 the tempting ways to get people into our seats? Do we follow all these things? Or do we stand upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation and seek to follow him? You see, we can win the battle and still lose the war. The other side of this battle, this was, this was in one sense a religious battle to defeat Baal. It was particularly uh, started here by Elijah on the great mountain where they had the great contest between Elijah and all the prophets of Baal. And of course, Elijah's God was the one true God who sent fire down from heaven to show that there was only one God in Israel. Now the battle that Elijah started has been won. But it was a battle not just against Baal, but against evil King Ahab and his family. It's interesting what takes place here. Verse 30 tells us the Lord was pleased with Jehu. We look at Jehu and we say, he, he was a mess. On the one hand, it seems he had great zeal to accomplish God's purposes, and yet on the other hand, he has no problem with wiping out not only Ahab and his family, not just Baal and his followers, but even those who had come up from Judah, that line that was related to the Ahab family. But here's what God says about him. He says he did well to do right in Yahweh's eyes. In other words, Yahweh commended Jehu's strike on Ahab. In fact, this was the very thing that God had told Jehu that he was supposed to do when he was anointed. Back in chapter 9, if you remember, the young man, the prophet of the uh, that was sent by Elisha, said to Jehu, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over the people, the Lord of Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And that's what he did. So God says about Jehu, says, you did what was right. In fact, the word right here is often the word we use for the word straight. It means he was going straight down the path of righteousness, following God on this matter. Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes. And then here, he did all which was in Yahweh's heart. You wonder. 
This is God saying, I wanted Ahab's family destroyed. This is God saying, I want the end of Ahab's family once and for all. This was what was in the Lord's heart. And because of this, the Lord commended Jehu's strike. And the reward was this. He says, because you did this, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. And they did. You think, wow, Jehu has won a great battle. Jehu, this man who drives like a madman, driving his chariot up to the castle walls to, to have Jezebel thrown down by the eunuchs. This Jehu who was not hesitating to take out his bow and arrow so that he could shoot the king of Israel. This Jehu who led the people against wicked King Ahab and his minions, his sons and his commanders. And he did that. But in the same breath, just like verses 28 and 29, the good thing, Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. The bad thing, he ceased from religious reforms. The good thing, he struck down the house of Ahab. The bad thing, verse 31, Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. Literally, he did not watch or guard to walk in Yahweh's Torah or law. Why did he do what he did? It wasn't because he had zeal for the Lord, evidently. He did what he did to follow the plan that God had for him, and yet the motivations were not from following the law of God. Remember, by this point, all the people of Israel should have known, although by this point they probably did not know, but all of them should have known that every king was to sit down and... <coughs> write a copy of the law of God. And he was supposed to meditate upon that law every day of his reign. Can you imagine a political leader today get, being required by his office to get out the Bible and read it every day and meditate upon it? That was what the leader of God's people was supposed to do. But here Jehu was said not to guard, to walk in the law of the Lord the God of Israel, with all his heart. In fact, it says he did not cease from Jeroboam's sins, which he caused Israel to commit. Again, here is the problem. The analysis of the narrator here, the compiler of the book of 2 Kings, his zeal was not for Yahweh. His zeal was for something else. Why was he doing what he was doing? What he did was good in destroying Baal. What he did was good in striking down Ahab. And yet the purpose for doing this was not to follow in zeal the law of God. It was a zeal for something else. I have to say, I think we're always considering whether someone is truly devoted to a cause, aren't we? Maybe the cause is something that's held dearly to our heart. Maybe it's some cause in a company that we're in, or maybe it's some cause in the community in which we reside. I can think of a lot of causes I would like to see happen, and some of those causes are just to encourage others or to see justice done. Some of those causes are to promote righteousness in our community and to have laws that truly 
do honor God. But how many times did you vote for somebody or did you recruit somebody or did you rely upon somebody and to expect their support for you only to find out when the, when the heat comes upon them, they betray you in the end. You see, the zeal for Jehu seems to have been legitimate, didn't it? In fact, Jehu even refers to the prophecies when he goes out and he sees Jezebel and her body on the ground destroyed and they're unable to collect it, to bury it. And he says, this is because this is what the Lord said in his word. And he constantly is referring back to these prophecies in, in his fighting this battle. In fact, sometimes you almost get the impression that he's trying to make the prophecy come true in his actions and his words. But the zeal of, Yah of Jehu seems to have been for Jehu and not for the Lord. After all, why was it that it was so advantageous for all these followers of Baal to be destroyed? Well, it's because these followers of Baal amongst them would have been sympathizers for Ahab, right? And Ahab and his sons, Joram and Ahaziah, who were also kings after Ahab, these individuals would have had advisors and counselors who were among the followers of Baal. So not only did he destroy Ahab, and he had zeal for that so that he could become king, he also destroyed all these followers of Baal because that, in essence, would have destroyed also all those sympathizers of the Omri-Ahab dynasty. And, and now it was possible for him alone to be king. And because of this, then what else did he do? He said, let's go back to the golden calves of Jeroboam. Again, good for Jehu, bad for the people. Jesus has something to say for those who have great zeal. And it's misplaced zeal with the wrong motivations. He says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Because they're hypocrites. Jehu on the outside had all the zeal and all the work to, to accomplish a great moral and religious purpose of destroying the false gods and turning people to the true God. But in his misplaced zeal and motivations, instead he turns them back to idol worship and to the golden calves of Jeroboam. On the one hand, Jeroboam does what is good. On the other hand, Jeroboam leads them back, or Jehu leads them back into sin. Verse 32 reminds us of what happens. Remember, he's already been commended. He's already gotten a reward. Jehu now is going to have the throne for him and the next men after him to the fourth generation. In verse 32, he says, In those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Haziel defeated them throughout the territory of Israel from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, Reubenites, and Manassites from Ror, which is by the valley of Arnon, that is Gilead and Bashan. Now you see by the end of this, he has a peaceful transfer to the kingdom. It's going to happen to his son, to his grandson, to his great-grandson. It's a reward for carrying out the word of God. But his reign is tumultuous. There is both good and bad. There is both violence and peace. 
When he ascended the throne, you know what happened. It was violent and yet zealous in his ascent to the throne. He was intent on carrying out this mass destruction of Israel or of Ahab and Baal. And then the next thing we find out is that he actually, in his kingdom, in his reign, acquiesced to Assyria. In fact, we can today turn to an actual physical monument called the Black Obelisk, which records from the history of Shalmaneser III, even with pictures and words and mentions Jehu, the king of Israel, who was among those kings who willingly brought tribute to Assyria. And we see that Jehu and his sons kingdom were acquiescing to Assyria. In fact, we get the impression that he willingly on his own initiative in order to preserve peace in Israel began to pay money to this pagan king of Assyria so that they would have peace in their time. And here's what took place. God began to cut off parts of Israel. There was pressure from Hazel, the king of Syria, you see, Assyria is the enemy to the north of Syria in particular. Assyria is, is constantly during this time period coming down and attacking the kingdom of Syria. And Syria is trying to stand up against Assyria. But when Israel, who has been an enemy at times and a friend at times of Syria, has now acquiesced to Assyria in the north, Assyria doesn't like it. And so Hazel comes by. According to prophecy, remember what took place. Haziel was also anointed by Elisha. And Elisha, when he looked at Haziel, tears came down his eyes. And Haziel said, for what are you weeping? And Elisha said, because I know the evil you will do to Israel. You will dash the infants to pieces. You will rip open the pregnant women. You will do terrible things. This is what was taking place in Gilead across the Jordan in the east. On your bulletin there, you see the map that takes place, and it's there across the river where it says on the right-hand side, Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben, otherwise known as Gilead, and to the north of that, the territory of Bashan. God began to chop off chunks of these territories so that they were no longer part of Israel. The transfer of the kingdom to his son, it was a peaceful transition after 28 years of Jehu's reign. But what should we make of all this? Why is this important? Why is this here? It's to remind us, in part, of political disillusionment. How appropriate for an election year, isn't it? On the one hand, he overthrows apostasy for perversion. The apostasy of a false god, Baal's worship, and now the perversion of the false golden calves. He's only restoring Israel to the pre-Ahab days. In fact, he's not caring, evidently, that they worship the true God. He's just looking that they get rid of the perversion or the apostasy of Baal so that they can go back to what he thought the kingdom was good for, the pre-Ahab days of the golden calf worship. You know, I remember in my lifetime, of course, I was young for the first ones on this list. 
But you remember the candidates that were supposed to be the next big religious leaders of our country. One of them was Jimmy Carter. He's still living. One of them is Ronald Reagan. Another one was George W. Bush. I remember all of these candidates, among others, were the ones who were supposed to be the next religious leaders to show that we are a Christian nation and to show that we were once and for all going to go down the right path as a nation with lights shining to the world. They were all billed as political and religious saviors of the country. Both parties in the last few elections have claimed this. If you only vote for me, we will save our country. We will save our democracy. We will save the republic. We will save whatever it is they're going to save. Both leading candidates this year, President Biden and former President Trump, are putting forth ads right now that say, if you vote for me, you will save our country. We can get so caught up, too in the leaders of the church. We say this is the leader who will revitalize our church. This is the pastor who will come in and cause all kinds of people to come to Christ. This is the one that will help keep us and keep us from drifting away from the truth. This is the one who will do this. This is the one who will do that. You get the idea. If Israel was placing its hopes on Jehu, and I have to say, if I was Jehonadab of the Rechabites, one of the moral individuals in the country who tagged along with Jehu on his battles and tagged along as ba Baal was destroyed, I would think to myself, wow, finally we have a leader who is going to deliver our nation. And yet he would be so disappointed. So disappointed when Jehu says, by the way, here, let's go back to idol worship. There are scores of churches today paying thousands of dollars to leave the United Methodist Church. The denomination, one among many, has been slowly dying for years. Each church standing on the word of God is a great victory. And yet the war seems to be going in the direction of defeat, doesn't it? What is the difference between Israel and 2 Kings and the church? What is the difference between Israel, who is looking to Jehu as the savior of the nation and the church? What do we look for? You see, it's this. It's Jehu versus Jesus, isn't it? Jehu, the, the human leader, who may look to have all the zeal and all the, the wonderful attributes of a leader who will follow God, yet in their heart, in his heart, his zeal was for himself. The church has a human yet divine leader, Jesus Christ. He will never fail us. His zeal was for the house of the Lord, we see, as he whipped and overturned the money tables. His zeal was for the Lord and following his will, not his own will, despite the struggle that took place, even sweating drops of blood over the temptation. He was the one who was willing to submit himself to death on the cross, and he now reigns in heaven, and he will never give up his throne. He is the king of righteousness, where Jehu was the king of wickedness. Here it is. You see here, we can win the battle while losing the war if we follow man. But this year, let us be reminded 
No political person is going to save our country. No political party is going to save our country. No individual is going to save our churches and prevent the moral collapse of a church that so easily compromises the truth. The only one who can preserve us and win the war is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us worship him and place our trust in him and have zeal for him. Let's pray. Father, I need to be reminded again and again, because I am very interested in politics and history and all those types of things, I need to be reminded that there is no Savior out there running for office. Lord, your office was ordained from before the foundation of the earth. You accepted that office by coming and dwelling upon, upon the earth like us as men, yet without sin. You accomplished our salvation, and your reign is forever. Help us, Lord, not to forget that. Help us, Lord, to have the zeal that you have for the Father. And help us, Father, to follow Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.